This is WOWD LP Tacoma Park. the Artist Experience Radio Show on 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. This is Sheila Blake, and I'm here with my husband, Peter. There's a small new show at the National Gallery of Art, Vermeer's Secrets. It's a behind-the-scenes glimpse that reveals findings about the paintings that have been attributed to the artist Johannes Vermeer. We want to share these secrets with you. So... First of all, it's Vermeer. I mean, that's enough to get us into the building. The specific theme of the show is the discoveries recently made by the conservation staff at the National Gallery of Art. This is the National Gallery, so it seems right that the conservation department should have a strong research program. One of the scientists, John Delaney, helped out with the recent analysis at the Phillips Collection of their Picasso painting, The Blue Room. This group develops and utilizes new chemical analyses that require only a microscopic bit of material, new imaging techniques with exotic wavelengths and image processing, all in the service of learning the techniques and materials of long-ago artists, deducing things about their working processes, and authenticating paintings. Now, I think... For most of us, the thrill of this exhibition will be that you get to view three sublime Vermeers and compare them with your own eyes to three other paintings that were purchased as Vermeers, displayed as Vermeers, but turned out to be not Vermeers. I think it's a wonderful exercise to look for the differences, trust in yourself, and really you can see the differences. This show Maybe the last time for many years that you'll get to see the fake ones. And I think that's worth a trip. Okay, so Vermeer, to me, is the greatest of the great painters. Maybe there's like a small population of art lovers who could be divided into two categories, the ones that love Vermeer most and the ones who love Rembrandt the most. To me, there's no contest. Johannes Vermeer was a Dutch Baroque period painter. He lived from 1632 to 1675. It's not very long. And he specialized in domestic interior scenes of middle-class life. During his lifetime, he was a moderately successful provincial genre painter, recognized in Delft and The Hague. The Dutch golden age of genre paintings was in many ways the pinnacle of Western art. 
as its ultimate accomplishment what painting could be, and Vermeer was the best of the best. When I was younger, there were about 40 Vermeers in existence, then there were 38, then 36, then 34, and now maybe only 31 works that are actually attributed to Vermeer. Vermeer and his wife had 11 children, 11. They weren't wealthy, and his absolute requirement for perfection, he could not be rushed, meant that he didn't make enough paintings to sell. He died when he was 43, leaving his wife and children in debt, and that accounts for a small number of his works that at this point is authenticated. And maybe that's why this show at the NGA is so sweet. And as to his life, after almost 400 years, there's not a lot to go on except for that movie, The Girl with a Pearl Earring. And that's about all I know. So why not I go with that? For two centuries, Vermeer was mostly forgotten, and then he was rediscovered in the 19th century. People were astounded that he became much more famous than he was during his life. And there was a lot of industrious searching through the attics of Holland for these paintings, you know, undiscovered paintings. Girl with a Flute was recovered in 1906 and donated to the National Gallery of Art by Joseph Widener. And up until now, the National Gallery of Art owned four Vermeers, which is pretty nice. And they also have two paintings that were attributed to Vermeer, but no way, Jose. Yeah, those two paintings, Smiling Girl and The Lace Maker, they're on display here, were bought by Andrew Mellon, who got conned. They were forgeries. I mean, just think, people are finding super valuable paintings in old manor houses, and that's just the perfect setting for a forger who will tell you some terrific story about how they were found just to make your greedy mouth water. <laughs> so so last, last year, the National Gallery owned four Vermeers, but the girl with the flute has always been suspect, and now it's been decided by the National Gallery team, the team with the X-ray fluorescent spectroscopy, in the museum's lab, that Girl with a Flute was not done by Johannes Vermeer. The experts can only guess about who painted it because there's hardly any information to help determine where some paintings have been. It has been suggested that the picture could be the work of one of Vermeer's 11 children, although there's no evidence that any of them painted, but with 11 kids, maybe one of them had his extraordinary gift and trained under him. Another possibility is that the painting might have been started by Vermeer and completed after his death by another artist, such as the Harlem painter Jan Kohlenbeer, who brought pictures from Katerina, Johannes's wife. After decades of study, the National Gallery team concluded that the girl with the flute, which was done between 1669 and 1675, it's not a fact, but they believe the painting was made by an associate of Vermeer, someone who understood the artist's process and materials, but was unable to completely master them. Exactly who that person might be remains to be determined. But the implication that Vermeer worked closely with other artists is significant because it changes the long-held belief that Vermeer worked in isolation. The mystery artist 
could have been a pupil or an apprentice, an amateur who paid Vermeer for lessons, a freelance painter hired on a project-by-project basis, or even a member of Vermeer's family. So it's not a forgery. Well, maybe Vermeer had someone to make paintings alongside of him. He sure needed money. But let's look at it. It's not a Vermeer, but it's pretty damn good. Those National Gallery people are really smart. They put this painting next to Girl with a Red Hat. The two paintings are side by side, and you can sit in a bench and just look at them. Both these paintings are small. They're seven by seven and an eighth inches. They're almost the same size. They're both on wood panels, which the curators say is unusual for Vermeer. So naturally, scholars frequently have seen these as works that were meant to complement or match each other. The subjects echo each other. Both girls look toward the viewer with alert eyes and half-open mouths. Each wears an exotic hat. Each sits before a tapestry in a chair with lion finials and leans on one arm. Light enters from the left in both of them, striking the left cheek, nose, and chin on both figures. A thin green glaze pulled over the flesh creates the shaded portion of both faces. The colored highlights accent each mouth, turquoise in the young girl with a flute and pink in the girl with a red hat. So you'll get to the differences that can be seen in a little while. Let me describe a bit of what the conservators found in the paintings that led them to certify as a final judgment that the young girl with a flute was not painted by Vermeer. Uh, and before we get to that, let's, let's pause a moment and talk about this thing, how people just did not really believe that the girl with the flute was genuine. I mean, you told me years ago that it was ridiculous. Wait, what did I say was ridiculous? <laughs> you ridiculed the idea that it was by Vermeer. You thought it was obviously not as good as the others. Now you say it's pretty damn good. I guess that's just what you compare it to. As a Vermeer, it was ridiculous, but as an almost Vermeer, it's pretty damn good. So we can get into that soon. But now let's just, let's just say what's obvious, that scientific data can actually prove the issue, while critical artistic experience is much more dicey when millions of dollars are on the line. And... The experts, they ultimately have to be right. That's a lot of pressure. Their whole reputation is hanging on these judgments. Right, and so they, 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 they couch their opinions in, in uh, a certain kind of language. Well, we looked up online what they were saying about the paintings in critical assessments like 30 years ago, and there was considerable skepticism. So... It was recommended to label the painting attributed to Vermeer. Uh, just for example, this is a quote from a critical assessment by Arthur K. Wheelock, Jr. in 1994. And I'll quote here. A comparison of the lion head finials in the two paintings shows that the brushwork of the young girl with a flute is relatively unrefined. While Vermeer modeled the right finial in the girl with the red hat, with subtle variations in the weight and thicknesses of brush strokes, those in the young girl with the flute less successfully create a sense of form and volume. 
In addition, the diffused yellow highlights enliven the blue jackets in a different manner. In The Girl with the Red Hat, Vermeer first highlighted the blue robe with light blue strokes and then applied short dabs of thin lead-tin yellow paint. He then painted the ridges of the highlighted folds with strokes of opaque lead-tin yellow. The jacket of the young girl with a flute is painted in a similar technique, but the colors appear less fresh and the strokes less fluid, etc., etc. That's that's the sort of thing that had to go on. It's it's not really aesthetic judgment, um, but more like a technical analysis of painting technique. Well, their approach is the way an artist handles a brush is like his handwriting. My approach, I think that Vermeer is perfection, that he could never make a painting that wasn't to his highest standards, and that's how you tell. But that may not be true either. He needed money. He could have taken shortcuts. I don't know. Anyway, nobody is going to take my word for it, so I don't need to worry about it. (laughs) You're listening to WOWD Tacoma Radio. This is Artist Experience, and I'm your host, Sheila Blake, here with Peter Blake. Today, we're talking about a current Vermeer exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., The show is titled Vermeer's Secrets and displays three genuine Vermeers owned by the National Gallery and three paintings once believed by the owners to be genuine Vermeers but have since been de-attributed. So this is a big deal. What's the difference between a real Vermeer and a fake Vermeer? I'm going to introduce the word provenance. Provenance is the record of ownership of the work of art or it could be an antique, and it's used as a guide to authenticity. This painting, Girl with a Flute, was donated to the National Gallery of Art in 1942 as part of the Widener Collection. It was sold to Widener by Frederick Muller, who worked for the Knoedler Gallery in New York City. It was sold in Amsterdam in 1696, but about 200 years passed when the painting was either unaccounted for or it just stayed right where it was. So rather than hide their collective head in the sand and damage the posthumous reputations of the museum people who acquired the painting and vouched for it and hung it with three other Vermeers, they decided to make it a learning experience and delightfully putting two paintings, Girl with a Flute and Girl with a Red Hat, side by side so that you can sit comfortably on a bench and look carefully and compare the two. What a lovely way to spend time. And what do you see? Well, okay. So when I was a student, we were told that Vermeer had the qualities of abstraction, that even though he had a subject, he had a story, that really you could turn a Vermeer upside down and it would be a good composition. We were taught that we should learn to evaluate our paintings in the same way. Well, when I turned a Vermeer upside down, I just saw an upside down Vermeer. My vision wasn't sort of developed enough to understand abstraction. Now I like to use a mirror. It's a similar thing, looking in a mirror to detect the disturbances in the composition or for a drawing. If I look at a sequence of Vermeers, like one after the other, the thing is I wouldn't change anything. Everything 
in these compositions is in perfect balance. The colors are harmonious, and the light coming in diffuses the edges, places the shadows in opposition to the objects, so that the shadows are equal to the objects as subjects of the painting. So the shadows are subjects of the painting. Yes. Now, I'd like to pause and really highlight that concept, balance. Um, you're an artist. You know what you mean by balance. But most people, even people that know about Vermeer and like his paintings and will go to the museum, they hear balance and think of a scale or a seesaw or center of gravity or surfing. The word has well-known meanings in other contexts, but to understand what it means in looking at paintings, you have to gain experience in looking at art. Only this will train you to see what it means. So it's natural for someone listening today to be quite unsure what balance is in a painting. Yeah, right. It took me a long time to see these abstract ideas. Balance, though, I think can be found by feeling in your own body what you are looking at. So in yoga, when I'm trying to do a tree pose and everything around me is tipping and falling and I'm trying to balance on one foot with one foot against my knee, I can't balance in myself if everything is tipping and falling. But if I'm focusing on a point on the wall in front of me, I can balance. There's a way that I can take the image of the painting into myself and feel the equilibrium. An opposite is the paintings of a contemporary artist, Amy Silman. She's an abstract artist, and when you look at her paintings, they're large, they're the exact opposite of Vermeer. She tilts you into space so that you're teeter teetering on the edge of falling over into space. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, you're saying balance is not just a, a metaphor, that there's um, that you can actually, you actually have feelings in the body uh, related to balance feelings of the body. Yes, I do. Yeah. 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 Um, I think <clears throat> that going to this show and comparing the real Vermeers to the false Vermeers would, would be a major step in anybody's practice of learning to see art more fully. Because uh, experiencing paintings fully, madly, and deeply isn't some personality characteristic which just appears in some people and not in others. It's, it's the result of practice. You can't learn it from a book. You have to practice. Go to museums, drink it in, and speculate. Sheila, why don't you give a little description of Vermeer's composition? Well, there were many Dutch genre painters in the 1600s, and they were remarkable. They were remarkable in their techniques, their meticulous attention to detail, but Vermeer is king. He knows everything about composition. His compositions are stable. They relax your eye. They relax your body. There's nothing you would want to change or that stands out as too dark or too light or too harsh, too soft, too anything. And he is perfect in subordinating details to the whole composition. And the action, too. The other famous genre painters of that time put the story first. 
But Vermeer's stories are quieter, they're more mysterious, and he can paint fabrics, rugs, pearls, pottery, furs, skin with the exact softness or hardness and never exaggerating so that apprehending a Vermeer is to have complete trust in where he takes you. So when I sat in front of both paintings, what did I see? The composition is firmly fixed, but not static, because the light takes you around the room and you bask in its own air and space. But Sheila, you know, what you just said, he can paint fabrics, rugs, pearls, pottery, furs, but you know, that's what forgers can do also. Well, that's true. But what I'm going to talk about is how he had a way of doing that, which it's not a show. It's that he can do that, but it's not a contest of who can do it better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just part of the whole painting. And, And some of it is just giving your eye the the way of finding the detail without giving you too much of it. Mm. A lot of those genre painters, they just give you too much detail. Yeah, yeah. So the those young... smiles. Yeah, those smiles. <laughs> oh, God, those frozen smiles. But So the young girl with the flute is a little weird. When it was given to the National Gallery of Art in Washington in 1942, there were two experts who didn't believe it was authentic. It just doesn't have that same sense of perfection. The dark left underside of the coolie hat is too big for the other side, and the artist thinks he can get away with it by hoping that your eye will believe it, but it upsets the composition. The right hand is a little awkward. It's propped in an acceptable way, but it appears to be just too fat. He could have made a slight suggestion of another finger on top of that, so that there appears to be another finger just slightly behind, but now it's a hand that's just too fat. He likes to hide his indecisions in the shadows, and that's the sleight of hand that the real Vermeer does so well, that he can describe a form, especially hands, in terms of just the shapes of light and shadow, and your eye will fill in the rest. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Also, the tapestry behind the girl with the flute doesn't hold together as a cohesive pattern. But here's what's important, the most important. The girl in the red hat is alive. She's just been a little bit startled, interrupted, inquiring, while the girl with the flute isn't in the act of anything. Yes, she's just posing, like for a a snapshot. In a real Vermeer, you have the sense that the subject is breathing. Yeah. That's when genius comes out. Well, you're listening to WOWD Tacoma Park. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and we're talking today about Vermeer's Secrets, the new exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. The show is up until January 8th. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we will continue with our talk about Johannes Vermeer.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today by my husband, Peter Blake. We're talking today about Vermeer's Secrets, the new exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. This show is up until January 8th, which isn't a long time. You should get over there. Sheila, let's celebrate today the return of the Calder Mobile to the atrium of the East Wing. I think they, uh, maybe they listened to our earlier podcast. <laughs> yes, because we were <laughs> bring saying, back the Calder. bring back the Calder. <laughs> and, and we were looking at that empty space, sort of fondly remembering the Calder Mobile. But I got to say, it's much better than I remembered. It's so yeah. beautiful, this mobile. The way, well, you can talk about it. It's great. Yeah, the, um, I, in the past, I never realized how much it fills the space, how it sweeps through so much space and seems about to decapitate the unwary. Uh, that would really have to be a very tall person, but it is, it's amazing. Yeah, well, you know, I think that for a long time, some there was some problem with the Calder moving, mm. and somehow they were able. Yes, it didn't always. Move. No, it didn't. It didn't, yeah. and I think that the thing that it sweeps through the space, mm-hmm. the whole space of the atrium, is incredible. I don't remember it doing that. Right. And there's also. Um, the Ellsworth Kelly yeah, panels. Hooray. They're back on the far wall. And uh, they look wonderful. Yeah, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. They have never looked this wonderful. And so the Kelly with the mobile moving slowly around, it is really just that itself is a beautiful experience. Yeah, they, they're, it's art of largeness. And there's also a, a large uh, Noguchi sculpture that I, I talked about in an earlier show. Um, it looks almost like a, like a god. Um, it has sort of the proportions of a, of a human body, but it's really big. So in this exhibition... Vermeer's Secrets. There are three genuine paintings by Johannes Vermeer. Uh, they are A Lady Writing, Woman Holding a Balance, and Girl with the Red Hat. And three false Vermeers. Girl with a Flute. This is the main painting of the show. Since a research project just completed has concluded that the painting was made in Vermeer's studio by a follower or a helper or a print apprentice, somebody not Jan Vermeer. Uh, Second is Smiling Girl. That's a 20th century forgery, probably by Theo van Wingarden. The lace maker. um, There was another lace maker in a recent show of Vermeer that was real. This one the lace maker is a forgery also also probably by Theo van Wingarden who was an accomplice of the master forger Han van Meegeren and that's an interesting story how van Meegeren was exposed he sold the Vermeer to to Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering 
And with the proceeds, he bought a mansion on the Riviera. After the war, he was arrested and charged with selling Dutch national property to the Nazis. And his defense was, it was a forgery. And he had to prove it by outing himself, showing that he had done many such forgeries. This was a much better crime. Uh, he only got a year in prison. <laughs> That's a great parable. Kind of like that O. Henry story in the fourth grade that we learned about the girl's hair and the comb. Yeah, a, lo a logic twist. Yes. Okay, let's get back to our main topic. What makes Vermeer's paintings so special? So let's start with Lady Writing, the first painting in the exhibition. There's a viol, like a, a viol da gamba, kind of like a cello in the background, in a painting on the wall. Uh, the curators say that this image brought up for Vermeer's contemporaries thoughts of love. Okay, I mean, that's part of the story in this painting of a woman pausing in thought at her writing, looking up at the visitor, that is, you, the viewer. Upper-class people in those days, almost all of them learned to sing and play music, and they played it in their homes. And a lot of the songs were, of course, about love. So the viol is a symbol of the love that is probably expressed in the letter. But music is not just depicted in Vermeer. There was a, a major work, a book, published in 1604, a manual for artists, Heck Schilderbuck, the painting book by a musician, a Dutch musician, Karl van Mander, which Vermeer surely knew about. Van Mander linked balance in musical composition to balance in a painted work. Balance was visual, and it was also oral. Harmony, harmony, harmony in the mechanics or color and shape of the composition. Quote, just as in music the multifarious sounds of the singers and the players harmonize, so here too, in painting, do the many different figures. Line, shape, and color were in a composer's sense of harmony as well as a painter's, and a painter's as well as a composer. So, uh, and look, it goes even deeper than that. There was at this time, a strong interest in synesthesia, or what later was called synesthesia, meaning the union of the senses. Uh, musical notes having colors, that sort of thing, had fascinated theorists since Aristotle. And in Vermeer's time, a Jesuit priest, Athanasius Kircher, who wrote extensively on music theory, published theories on the correspondence of musical notes to specific colors. Um, I think we'll put up on our Facebook page a chart of the correspondences. So, you know, a minor sixth is red-violet, while a major sixth is bright red, for example. According to Kircher, deep, dark sounds of minor notes are associated with cool, deep colors, while the warmer brighter sounds of major notes are warmer, lighter colors. And so um, a person with this, with this quality of synesthesia could hear a painting 
as well as see it. And Kircher believed, he was a Jesuit priest, that the coexistence of sensory functions had profound implications in worship and that the immersion of sight and sound had the capacity to, quote, move the passions that under properly controlled conditions ravish the soul and lead the faithful closer to the divine. I guess my point is not that we need to study this arcane material or in order to love Vermeer, but that for Vermeer, in his time, there was a lot to reach for. You said earlier, Sheila, that this, um, his contemporaries went straight for the story. We saw this in, in another show, also at the NGA, a couple years ago, about Vermeer and his contemporaries. The other paintings were really good at communicating the story, their characters, their emotions, their station in life, etc. But Vermeer was reaching higher. He was reaching to a higher plane. And the plane was there. The plane was described by, by the theorists. Um, the story is there in the painting. It's part of the whole experience. But Vermeer's stories were much less dramatic. You see the subject in rapt absorption or just looking up from being absorbed. There is a spirit, a quiet spirit of absorption that Vermeer sort of makes flow over into the viewer. He wants you to float into the harmony that is not just illustrated, but somehow actually created. Yes, um, I just have to interrupt this wonderful thought that you're going on to say that I have that color number association and with colors or letters, colors or numbers. And when I was a kid and uh, people would give me their phone number, remember? Yeah. <laughs> Hickory 10838, I would remember that by a series of stripes, of colored stripes. And they're consistent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, consistent but, over time. Consistent you over, even it. now I can still remember yeah, them, yeah, yes. Yeah. So um, I mentioned earlier that there's, at least in my mind, a Vermeer-Rembrandt split, two great artists. Rembrandt is dramatic. He used chiaroscuro, the the light and dark and the light accents and the dark shadows to give tension and accentuate the drama which he focuses in the center of his compositions. There's movement, almost as if the painting was capturing the still moment in the action like the blink of an eye when the action stood still just for a, a microsecond, but the action has happened and it will continue to happen. This is Rembrandt. The drama is external. With Vermeer, this drama is internal. Time stands still. In Vermeer's contemporaries, there's a kind of contest. Who can paint the most glowing jewels? Who can paint the best satin, the best loot, the finest details? Who can paint the rollicking dog pulling on the <laughs> gown of the woman that's sewing? And, and the wayward hand of an officer getting ready to seduce a maid. But then there's Vermeer, who's subordinating all these things to the quiet moment. A pause, and that pause is the substance of life itself, the perfect moment, and nothing else can disturb it. 
Vermeer's way of showing just enough detail, but hiding it in the shapes of the light and shadow, knowing just how much to show, and that little shape that challenges your eye to fill in the rest. Try drawing or painting a hand, which is something that comes up a lot. How much of that hand do you show? How many wrinkles in the knuckles? How do you indicate the nails without making them grotesque? How many fingers do you need to really show the five fingers of a hand? I mean it. Try it. It's that leaving out that draws us in. Hmm. You're listening to WOWD Tacoma Radio. This is Artist Experience, and your host, Sheila Blake, and I'm Peter Blake. Today we're talking about a current Vermeer exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. The show is titled Vermeer's Secrets and displays three genuine Vermeers owned by the National Gallery and three paintings once believed to be genuine Vermeers but have since been deattributed. Oh. <clears throat> All right, so I get to save the best of, for the last. The Woman in, with a Balance is in the National Gallery of Art, and it contains everything we've been talking about. It's a woman holding and holding. There must be a more delicate word for these perfect shapes of dark and light that become a hand with fingers carefully. I mean, careful is that great action in this painting that is suspending an almost but barely visible balance made of the finest thread of a line that makes two triangles with one and then two highlights, and that is the balance at the center of the painting. The painting behind the woman is the last judgment, and the woman is pregnant, which is never mentioned, but there's just the most slender shadow of her cloak outlining the orange curve of her belly, or as we now say, baby bump. <laughs> so th there must be some sort of... Um, um, Rhyme or or connection or symbolism or allegory um, of the pregnancy, the pregnant woman, maybe, uh, you know, the sweetness of a pregnant woman with the balance and the last judgment. I mean, it's all making some sort of a, of a feeling. You know, what I liked at first, I didn't actually see the balance. It's painted with such a fine little point of a brush. In fact, it wasn't until I saw the museum's little piece about their special camera and how it showed that Vermeer changed the balance in, in, in a revision so that the trays were level with each other when they weren't in, in the first version. Um, and there was a picture of that change. But I hadn't even seen the balance in the first place. Now I looked for it and seeing it emerge out of the background, that's the discovery that's so pleasing when you look at art. There's another aspect of Vermeer's uniqueness, the perfection of anatomy. You were just talking about what, what's left out, but still there is a perfection of the proportions. And there's lots of painters that we love and who cheat a little bit or a lot on anatomy and we don't care or even notice. 
But something about what Vermeer is trying to accomplish seems to require perfection of the body proportions. The hands, so take a look at the hands and the little bones of the wrist, the, the form that the forearm has, and the way the head sits on the shoulders, it's all perfect. And I don't mean that this in itself is the admirable thing about Vermeer. I mean, we don't want to treat painting as a contest, and Vermeer wins the accuracy contest, the accuracy event. I just mean that for some reason, that accuracy is essential to what Vermeer is trying to accomplish. It's just an essential aspect of his work, and one of the major clues to distinguishing the genuine paintings from the false ones. Yeah, well, painting is a fiction. As we've said so many times, it's a two-dimensional surface with the illusion of three dimensions, and artists have developed devices that show that illusion. Perspective, for one light and shadow for depth and form, and of course, in the body, foreshortening is key to putting the figure in space. And as Peter says, sometimes we don't care, but whatever devices Vermeer uses, there seem never to be distortions. How does he do that? Yeah, how does he? The, the perfection of anatomy is one reason why it's speculated that he used optics somehow in his work. Also, that he was good friends with Antony van Leeuwenhoek, a, a major scientist and a pioneer in optical instruments. I mean, he, he really developed the microscope. So, uh, we've talked before pretty much favorably about the theory of David Hockney that the use of optics was a hidden and secret tool used by artists over the centuries, way before photography was invented. Now, uh, seemingly, the only instrument that could have been helpful in Vermeer's day was the camera obscura, where a single lens, which could have been ground by von Leeuwenhoek, would project a faint, upside-down image of the brightly lit subject into a dark chamber where it could be traced. In fact, it's hard to imagine that von Leeuwenhoek would never have shown his friend this camera obscura, that's just impossible to believe. If, if anybody's interested, uh, you can read Hockney's book. But, okay, so some of our listeners may have seen an interesting movie called Tim's Vermeer. This is a documentary movie of a year-long project dreamed up and perpetrated by a wealthy engineer, Tim Jennison, who developed a truly ingenious way of using the camera obscura to paint in accurate color the scene in front of the camera. He recreated in an Arizona industrial park Vermeer's room with the light streaming in from the window up on the left-hand wall and a harpsichord and two models in period costume. And they were all placed to imitate or replicate a painting by Vermeer owned by Queen Elizabeth in Buckingham Palace. And T Tim projected this full-color scene into a camera obscura in which he sat and he applied his ingenious technique. And the movie presented the result as a triumphant success. 
But actually, David Hockney's own engineering colleague, Charles Falco, told me that it wasn't really a success. Tim's Vermeer would never be mistaken for a genuine one. The movie makers showed that Tim's painting was a remarkably accurate picture of the constructed scene, but they never showed the painting in comparison to the original Vermeer painting. Still, as an optical engineer, I loved that movie. Well, it was also said that 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 painting, the original painting in Buckingham Palace, they were only allowed like 15 minutes to look at that painting ever, and they couldn't go back and photograph it, so it gives them cover. That's true. They had an excuse for not showing the two together. How convenient. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to mention that the name of David Hockney's book is Secret Knowledge. It's really great. Yeah, and his co-author is Charles Falco. Yes, Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's go, let's go on to forgeries. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> There's a terrific movie um, titled Made You Look. You can see it on Netflix about a, um, a huge painting fraud in which the Nodler Gallery, we mentioned the Nodler Gallery earlier in the show, the Nodler Gallery, which sold old masters to rich people in Manhattan since the Civil War, sold... Over 20 years, $80 million worth of Rothko's, Pollock's, de Kooning's, Motherwell's, all the great abstract expressionists. These paintings came out of nowhere because they were forgeries. And most of the movie, very interesting, is about who was responsible and how the con was perpetrated and was the gallery's director, Anne Friedman, in on the game? What did she know? Um, But the Rothko at the center of the lawsuit was beautiful. Everyone said so. And it turns out that all the paintings were made by a Chinese painter trained for years in Chinese art schools. He made them in his garage in Queens. In China... Students are trained by copying great art, even modern art. And we have some friends whose parents, our friends' parents, they live in Florida. They have several um, art copies. They're they're not forgeries, but they're they're copies of a Dubuffet and a Rothko. And what's wrong with that? You know, if I weren't, Married to an actual artist, I would have no problem putting a beautiful painting like that in my dining room. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about that, thank goodness. Yes, <laughs> well, The Girl with the Flute was sold through the Nodler Gallery, and we should remind you that it was through the Nodler Gallery that many of these old master transactions were made in the early part of the 20th century. This movie is really worth watching. It takes you into the world of art dealing, and it leaves you with so much doubt, questions about all these collectors, the experts, the relationships between them. None of them came out smelling too good. And abstract paintings like Pollock and Rothko have to be evaluated partly by comparing the materials that were used because 
They can turn up in someone's cluttered office like maybe they're a 10 Pollock somewhere that got traded for rent or or a couple of meals or something. Yeah, that's the story. Yeah, <laughs> it the is forgery. the story, right. right. <laughs> and, and how can anyone say for sure if the materials match, although they might not match, that it does or doesn't look like a Pollock? Yeah, that that's the interesting situation to ponder that's brought up here. You know, I'm sure all of us have at some time or another thought about how much of the value of a painting is the attribution. I mean, uh, uh, this painting by Goya is worth hundreds of millions, and a copy which, let's say, imagine, looks exactly the same, would be worth, what, $1,000? Um, now, usually you can squeak out of this dilemma because almost always the copy, the reproduction, the forgery is not as good as the genuine. But here in this case, perhaps we're, we're getting that, that, that genuine case where the forged Rothko is as good as the real one. And, yes. yeah, maybe... Maybe Rothko is copyable. I mean, <clears throat> Kelly, Ellsworth Kelly is copyable. Uh, copyable. I mean, I even, you know, I'll, I'll see an, a, a lovely Ellsworth Kelly and I'll think, I could copy that and, and put the copy on my wall. And people would be astounded. It's just, the, you know, sort of a little thought. But maybe Rothko uh, could be copied also. Well, one thing that was accentuated in the movie Made You Look was that everyone who saw the fake Rothko said it was beautiful. And I mean everyone. They showed it on camera, and it did look beautiful. And I need to confess this. I don't always find Rothko's beautiful. There's a whole room, like a big gallery, at the National Gallery of Art, and I can plump myself down on a bench and stare and stare and then I think, maybe I'll shift to the next one or the next. They take time, like a meditation. And sometimes I'm just too distracted. But there's one Rothko. It has a magenta rectangle on top. And then about two-fifths down is a black rectangle. And at the very bottom, there's an orange strip that has a, a sort of a profile like water. The whole thing has a transparent light with a thin light near the horizon. There's a Milton Avery called Tangerine Sky and Wine Dark Sea that's an upside-down version of this one. It's lovely, too. Rothko and Avery were friends, and Rothko would visit Avery many times. Avery was quite a bit older, and finally Avery's wife Sally kicked him out. She thought he was borrowing way too much, and if you look, you can see Avery's colors simplified into the vertical stacks that Rothko painted. And then there's mm. some issue of Rothko's paint that the pigments weren't stable because, who knows, he bought that stuff at the hardware store. Of course, it's debated because the hardware store at that time carried Bocour oil colors, which were which were real oil colors. It's not just like only he was buying enamel paint from mm -hmm. the uh, from the shelf. But partly he he could have, and and so you don't really know. But that there's certainly 
a big possibility that the pigments faded over time and they lost their luminosity. Remember what I said about trusting Vermeer? Mm, yeah. Well, yeah. So you yeah. mean you mean that the uh, you know if you're looking at a Rothko and you're just not feeling it. I mean, there could be several reasons. I mean, you, you could be just too tired. You need a cup of coffee. Or it could be that the paint has faded. Uh, or or you, you don't know, but you have to give it your belief. You have to give it your faith. I mean, so like we're, let's take the four Roscoe's in the Phillips collection. We know those thoroughly. We could just go into that room and enter into the paintings and just float into those cosmic spaces. Which, and, but the East Wing has been closed for so many years and we just don't know those Rothkos. And my point is, you're required to give yourself up in perfect faith to get the Rothko experience. You might not get it on any particular day, but you have to let go of any skeptical feelings. You have to let them go. And, and so this is sort of similar. This is kind of a micro-religious experience. And you feel good when your spirit floats into those created spaces. And you feel proud to be able to get at the essence of this fine art. And you feel one with the genius that created it. And you lose nothing by giving up your skepticism. But it is a requirement for enjoying a lot of modern art. You let go of the skepticism and see how the artwork is teaching you how to read it. And this is the opposite attitude of someone who is trying to determine if a painting is worth $20 million. I mean, if you are about to part with $20 million or are in any way responsible for it as an advisor to the rich and powerful, you, you're using your mind in an entirely different way. And so looking at the same issue from the other side, the profound and valuable art-loving experience with a Rothko painting in the museum, a real one, what does it signify if you can get the same experience with a copy made in China? If you can get that same experience, or if you can't, either way, it's a lot to ponder about the nature of art, right? Maybe we can recommend to the National Gallery that they do another show with genuine Rothkos side by side with fakes. Right? That would be a great and courageous show. It would be, actually. But there is something really true about looking at a painting, like Van Gogh is the perfect example of this, but knowing that that brushstroke, those brushstrokes, those Tubes of squeezed paint on those wheat fields were made by Ro by Van Gogh, and that there is fresh, yeah, yeah. there is immediate today as they were when he made them, and that is really part of the oh, thrill. It's, part, it's like it's part. It's like a. It's one of the myths of our little religion. Myth in the sense not not of being wrong, but it's it's you feel the presence. Yes. Uh, centuries ago, they, they feel the presence of the Virgin when they look at the picture of the Virgin, but we feel the presence of, of the artist. Yeah, we do. And it's real, and it's like it's nowhere else. Either music is in a recording or yeah, yeah. Uh, 
literature is in printed words, but the paint is the same exact paint. It's not translated in any way. So, okay. (laughs) And it turns out that the hunger for Vermeer's in the 1920s from rich collectors like Andrew Mellon, who was bitten by the art bug, made a perfect setup for forgeries. What's funny, though, is that I could see that the flute painting could be mistaken for Vermeer, but there are some hilarious fakes that were bought that are part of this exhibit. Makes you wonder if the collectors were really looking at all or they were just greedy and making a bad judgment. The buyer for the painting has his reputation at stake, and so does the seller. Yeah, the problems of the rich. <laughs> There's such schadenfreude in, in that documentary about the art forgeries. Schadenfreude, I guess, is one of the main elements of documentaries, isn't it? The ones I, we love. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the art world. Uh, so flooded and distorted with money. <laughs> So, wait a minute. We, 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 this is the time uh, we have to th- remind our listeners uh, your show is up. Uh, Memory is a Funny Thing, a show of your memoir portraits. Uh, it's at the Foundry Gallery in Washington, D.C., uh, and it's up through the end of the month, through October 31st. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go see it. It's a good show. It's a good show. Yes. Yeah. So t- stay tuned, folks. Coming up next on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, this music. From 10 a.m. until 1, Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play free jazz and other improvised music. No standards, no standard repertoire. And on alternate Sundays from 8 to 10, our friend Gail Barnes hosts Night Ride Home. This show features singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell, alternative and indie bands, just good songwriting. In this time slot next week, listen to Lost Treasures, where DJ Mackey spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) ¶¶